This episode is brought to you by Griefline, Australia's national not-for-profit service that offers free non-crisis support to anyone experiencing grief or facing any type of loss. As well as their national helpline, Griefline has loads of incredible free support services, support forums, grief education and resources, and even corporate and volunteer training programs and workshops. If you are struggling and need extra support or want to know how to support someone who is coping with loss, visit griefline.org.au. You're listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are back today with a very special guest interview for you all. Um, but before we dive in, Sal, how the bloody hell are you? I feel like you should freaking ask me first. It's always you going first. Okay, let's go, Im. <laughs> let's change things up. Let's. How are you doing, Im? Oh. Enough about, let's, let's wait for me. Yeah, it's all about you. <laughs> um, I actually don't even feel like I have anything profound to say anyway, but I'm okay. Um, I'm on my trip, which has been long awaited. I haven't gone overseas since before mum died. So it's been quite interesting. Like I've been really struggling with not being able to share things with her while I'm away. Like she's Mm -hmm. the person that would be like, as soon as I'm at the, at the airport, text me when you're at the airport, you know, let me know everything, every all the details about the trip she wants to know because no one cares as much as your mum, let's be honest. So true. And I think it brings up like feelings of grief because like there are things that are going on in your life, right? Mm. And meaningful moments and you just want to be able to share them or ask some questions like, have you been here? What did you do? Like, where would you recommend? Like all of those kind of things, like, because she liked traveling, didn't she? A lot. So it's oh, she loved really traveling. Hard. We traveled like yes, yeah, so many places together. Um, a lot of Europe, and yeah, we just we loved going away together. It was our thing. And one of the things that I have found hard is I really wanted to go and visit Cornwall this trip. So I've sort of recently found out that there's a lot of like family history there for me and a lot of meaning and it was a trip that my mum wanted to do but she never got to do and it's a place where she felt connected to her biological dad who she didn't have the best relationship with and they sort of lost contact until she was a lot older and had kids and then found him again so it's a really sad story Mm. um but I was at my sister's recently and she gave me a letter like a handwritten letter that he had written my mum and it was so incredible reading it it was like like hearing my mum through her dad, they were so similar in the way they were so poetic with their words and just the way they described things. It was, they had a real love for life and, and people. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I started exploring him because he was my biological grandfather who I'd met when I was really young, but I don't really know much about. Like he was such a fascinating guy. Like he was one of the directors of Grace Brothers, which is like the Maya now, like really high up in advertising and he was also an artist he did painting and he ran off with a man and lived in Morocco and like he was just a really interesting guy and I see a lot of my mum in him so there's this connection which I'm starting to find and also feeling a little bit of grief for this grandfather who I never grieved because mm-hmm. I didn't really know him and I'm kind of grieving for mum and the relationship that she didn't get to have and so he died in Cornwall and he lived in, in Penzance um, in Cornwall too. So there's a lot of history there. And I've got the address of the house that he was living in, which he put on the letter back to my mom. And I just, I just want to go, but I also don't because I can't talk to mom about it. So it's this really weird, like mixed feelings with it. It's, I feel like what you need to do is write your mom a letter when you're there. Mm, oh my God, stop. I'm going to cry. <laughs> like what's wrong with me lately I feel like that would be maybe something to do like when you are there and like continue that sort of bond and that kind of you know you found out more about him through the letter maybe that could Mm. be something that that you could do if you felt up for it but I think it's it's you know it's it's so hard when you it brings up those feelings of grief doesn't it you just want to be able to like talk to them and it amplifies the feel like the feelings of them you know the, the missing them but mm. I think it's amazing that you've also 
discovered these new elements to your family story because in a way I'm sure it makes you feel kind of connected to your mum as well yes I don't know if you do this but I kind of like kick myself I'm like why wasn't I interested when she was alive why didn't I ask more questions why didn't I find out more about her story with her dad like I just feel like I was so caught up in my trivial mundane life problems back then that I just wasn't that interested and I I hate myself for it but I think it's common isn't it I think it's so common don't hate yourself for it it's really common it's really really (laughs) common yeah um so yeah that's going on but I love that idea about writing the letter and I think you know we do hear a lot actually I know through Grievous Anonymous people have called and said about this kind of weird holiday grief about feeling like they don't want to go somewhere because their loved one isn't there or not being able to contact them but taking them with you is a really nice thing to do you know like you said like connecting with my mum while I'm there sending her a letter describing what it's like and telling her in some form because that relationship doesn't end um which we've learned but I love that idea um thanks for letting me go first (laughs) I feel like I wasn't yeah I just needed to process that little bit of grief that little bit of holiday grief but how, how are you doing yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm missing you being here in Oz. Um, but the WhatsApp messages in different time zones, you know, it's just not the same. But I can't <laughs> wait to have you back. And um, I'm good. I haven't been super... Well, I mean, look, it's coming up to my mum's anniversary. So I'm expecting grief bombs to be hitting. But when I say I haven't been griefy, I mean having a fairly strong couple of days we never know do we but I've got to tell you actually about um this really it's really sweet but like my so my sister-in-law calls uh calls us um the other week and she's like um what like what size t-shirt is Sally (laughs) and my husband's like what do you mean? She's like, so James, our nephew, her son had, she's like, James had a really vivid dream about Rose um, the other day. And like the other night he had a really vivid dream um, and Rose was telling him and she was like, like adamant that he had to make Sal a tie-dye t-shirt. So he wants to know what t-shirt size she is um, and what color she'd like, because he's insistent that he has to do this for Rose. And he's eight. He's eight. Eight? Yeah. Oh my God. No, this is actually so special. And for anyone listening who is new here, Rose is Sal's mum. Yes, Rose is my mum. This is just so special. Oh my God. Yeah. And the thing is like eight-year-olds, like kids are so open spiritually to those sorts of things. But so strange that he had a dream about your mum. Yeah, apparently Jazz, my sister-in-law was like, like he he talks about Rose like all the time, which I was really surprised about because I think my mum visited New Zealand and aunt's family like once or maybe twice. Um, and like was really like close to aunt's mum and, 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 and family. Um, but I was surprised that he remembers her and Jazz was like, yeah, he talks about all the time. Um, so yes, yeah, so Anna and I were like, A, that's amazing that he remembers his dream. B, that he is insistent that he needs to act upon it, you know, for an eight-year-old. Hey, tie-dye's in now. Like this could be the start of a new venture for him. Yeah. <laughs> and also like, I wonder, you know, like, like it felt like maybe it was like a visitation dream because apparently she was like insistent that he needed to 100%. make this So I've got no idea why it was tie-dye, you know, but... Okay, when yeah. this T-shirt comes into your hands, please take a photo. We're putting this on our socials. Like, this is amazing. I know, I'm going to treasure it. So, From your mum's so, yeah. three nephew. Yeah, <laughs> so like, just, yeah, I was very impressed that he has actioned this dream for like an eight-year-old. I thought that was quite quite unique. So anyway, enough about us because we could go on forever as always. <laughs> um, let's talk about today's guest. Im, who are we going to be talking to? Yes, we are talking to Britt Frank. She is a licensed psychotherapist, a trauma specialist and author of the excellent book, The Science of Stuck. I bloody loved how open and raw this conversation was and it was just really helpful Also, interestingly, we talk about what is classed as trauma, which might surprise you. Yes, I think it's become a bit of a buzzword, hasn't it? So it was Mm. good to hear her um, professional insights on to what trauma really is. And um, we also talk about the concept of shadow intelligence and what that is, which was also super interesting. Um, I also loved how we got to explore... Uh, a very interesting topic of why you love British crime drama so much, Sal. She gave us a bit of a psychoanalysis, didn't she? Yes, and your <laughs> um, your health anxieties, guys. My health they, googling. 
definitely like if you like if you like a crime drama or if you like really gruesome kind of dark crime dramas stick mm. stick around to the end because she has some kind of interesting insights into why uh why we might like that kind of stuff so guys this i think this conversation there's something for everyone let's get into today's convo enjoy guys Britt, it's so good to have you on the podcast. And before we talk about the science of feeling stuck, we'd like to talk about your personal journey because it is fascinating. You faced a lot of trauma in your life. You've struggled with addiction, a personality disorder, and you've even been in a cult, which, you know, it's not something that you hear about every day. So tell us a little bit about your journey and how it led you to do the work that you do. It's so funny, the cult thing, which was such an afterthought <laughs> for me to even talk about, has become the thing I talk about the most now. I'm like, maybe that should be my next book because it's so not the most extreme part of my story. It's like, it's oh, yeah, so intriguing. Yeah. yeah. That, that happened. So I grew up in what looked like a quote, normal family. And I think a lot of people, and I hear this in my practice, it's like, well, what's my problem? We had enough money. We had enough to eat. My parents were married. And it's like, unfortunately, trauma seeps in the cracks of many, many things besides your basic needs. So even if you weren't being beaten by your parents, even if you were never out on the street, there are a lot of other ways to get screwed up as a human for good yes. or for bad. Yes. So, Sal and I are nodding. Did, <laughs> right? Yeah. I did not know that though. All I knew was that I am crazy. Like I had, I was addicted to pornography at the age of eight. Um, and so then when I became a teenager and I had access to more things, I became addicted to those. And then as I continued on, I just, my, you know, people say, well, how did you get into whatever your addiction was? It's like, whatever was around me is what I used until mm -hmm. I had choices. And then I, I broadened. The cult thing was as a New York Jewish person, the really only way to rebel against that system is to move 1500 miles to the middle of nowhere and join a Christian cult. And so I did would not recommend that as uh, a way of getting out of a toxic family <laughs> dynamic. But for me, it was quite effective. And people say, well, how did you get out of the cult? And I say, well, sex and love and drug addiction will take you from one cult into another one. So I did that. And then I popped out and went back to school. And now I am a trauma therapist. And here we are. <laughs> I just watched um, Devil in Ohio, like before our chat. I'm like, oh my God, I got to ask Britt, like, is it like, I don't know if you've watched it yet on Netflix, but it's all about a cult. But like, can you just get out of a cult? Like, how did, how did you just leave? So it's very, very interesting because not all cults are like Westboro Baptist where, you know, you're sitting there protesting people and hate mongering. Yeah. Not all cults are the kind where if you try to leave, they're going to stalk you and harass you and surround you. The cults, the, the flavor of cult I was in was if you want to leave, go, we're going to shun you. We're not going to talk to you, mm. but we're not going to stop you. Okay. And so I thought like, Oh, well, mine, I didn't even realize how culty it was until really as I was starting to get out. I'm like, oh, shoot, this is this is pretty, this is pretty intense. But I was fortunate that the variety I stumbled upon was a, a shunning kind and not a harassing. We're not going to let you leave kind. So, yay. Yeah. Okay. It, it's so interesting. I've never met anyone. I don't think Im has either that's been in a cult. And um, and you said earlier, Britt, that you know, you, the trauma that you'd experienced, you didn't realize it was trauma. And that's really interesting because I think Im and I have had this conversation loads, haven't we, Im? I was, I was going to ask Britt this straight away, actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah, because we both have had quite a lot of trauma in our lives, but didn't necessarily always see it as trauma. Can you tell us a little bit more about the things that are traumatic that we might not always realize are traumatic? I have a post that I was going to put up tonight and it's, you know, not all trauma causes PTSD, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And you could also get PTSD from things you wouldn't think of as traumatic. And really mm. our brains, even with abuse though, like for me and for a lot of people that don't talk about this because of the shame, for me, the childhood sexual abuse was not violent, nor was it painful. In unfortunately, our bodies do respond, like our nerve endings are going to respond. 
respond. And so there's a thing called unwanted arousal, which is even for a child being sexually abused, if they are being aroused, if they orgasm, they're going to think, well, I liked it. I wanted it. I consented to it. Therefore it was an abuse and it won't even register that that actually is not right. That's even if you thought you wanted it, even if you thought you enjoyed it because of the power differential. But I didn't even know that that type of abuse was abuse until way later. I had a therapist, a very skilled therapist. I was like, well, you know, I was never hit and da 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 da. And she's like, Britt, mm. you have some trauma. I'm like, I don't have trauma. That's, that's that stuff. And the definition of trauma is Anytime our brain interprets something as unsafe, it will get locked in our nervous systems. And sometimes that gets expressed as what we traditionally think of as PTSD, flashbacks, nightmares, things like that. But really all, all of our symptoms, if you, if you boil it all the way back, come down to some sort of trauma. It might not be your trauma. It could be your family's trauma or your grandparents' trauma. Yay, we've learned through epigenetics that like <laughs> trauma that you haven't even lived through can get stored in your body. And my body was telling a lot of stories that I didn't understand. I didn't understand the language of trauma. I didn't, you know, my grandmother, the legend in my family is that the men in the white coats came and took her away. And my father was watching his mother go get taken off to the hospital to get shock therapy. And she was severely mentally ill. I had her trauma in my body and I am reacting to things that never happened to me as if they did. Plus I had plenty of things happening to me that did happen to me. It is very confusing if you don't know this language to decode. I just thought, I literally thought I was crazy. I've since learned there's no such thing as crazy. That's not a thing. There is no such thing as a crazy person. Everything makes sense in context. Um, but man, was that a ride trying to figure out wait, what, what's normal? What's healthy? Like the sex thing, no sexual boundaries in my family at all. Like I didn't even understand like, well, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and what's healthy for a child and what's not, you mean everyone's family doesn't do this. And it's very confusing if you don't know what it is. So I'm very passionate about speaking vocally about trauma and the ways trauma can creep in through anything. You can see things and that can land in your system as trauma. Our brains don't often distinguish between what we're seeing and what we're experiencing, which is why you ingest enough media, you're gonna start having symptoms, even though that stuff is happening to people that you do not know in a place that you are not located. And thank you for being so like honest about your experiences as, as well, because I think that helps so many other people who are living with that shame and, you know, not even understanding what happened to them. And um, it was interesting. I was watching a YouTube the other day and it was talking about like the first seven years of a child's life is crucial. Like if you don't get those first seven years right, like, you know, and, and the thing is like, like you mentioned epigenetics and intergenerational trauma, like our parents are fucking up like they're fucking up from how their parents fucked up and it's impacting us and especially in those first seven years but we've got no idea that that's happening and I feel like there's sort of a real awakening now of people realizing and trying to break those you know chains of trauma it's it's a lot it's a lot it is and I have a disclaimer here because I've chosen not to have children I am child free by choice and I'm very happy with my choice however I hear from parents all the time when they learn about this and they're like oh my god I'm fucking up my kid and I'm like don't worry it's it's not the mess ups that's gonna mess up your kids it's you know he, we're human we're gonna screw up every parent yeah. is gonna screw up it's are you willing to name the screw ups when they happen are you willing to attune to your child if they're struggling are you willing to seek out resources if you know you're not sure what's going on so no shame if you're a parent and you're screwing up your kid because you didn't know about epigenetics great epigenetics is a thing now you know differently and we can make different choices but no parent i'm big on not shaming parents who really are trying to to do things differently but yeah like it's really hard raising humans that's one of the reasons yeah. i've chosen not to do it a lot of our listeners they you know, they have lost a loved one and may not even realize they're experiencing trauma from the loss. Maybe it wasn't a, you know, a, a traumatic loss, so to speak, but you can still have like an intense, you know, sense of trauma from that. And the guilt people feel, you know, I think grief mm -hmm. work is the most powerful work that there is to be done because underneath, I mean, the, the medicine for trauma is to access grief because trauma keeps us in such a vigilant state that we can't access anytime we have a loss, not just with death, but with 
anything that we either got that we didn't need or that we didn't get that we did need or that we got in some amount that was not like a good match for what the need was. Anything can be a loss. And if we're not taught how to grieve or given permission to grieve or understand what grieving even is, then we're going to stay locked in that trauma space because the goal of trauma healing isn't to change the past. It's to grieve the past. And if we don't mm. understand that the goal of trauma healing is grief, we're going to spin. And so the work that you're doing in the grief space is so, so sacred and so powerful. And it really is. It's not a good sell. Hey, I'm a therapist and I want to sell you on the goal of our work is to get you to your grief. But that really is the medicine for the wound ultimately yes. other than safety and access to resources and basic needs, like not being oppressed and clean water, like all of that aside, assuming that that's there, grief is the medicine that heals the trauma eventually. Yes. I love that. And something that we've talked about with you before, but for anyone listening, from your therapist perspective, what is the difference between grief and trauma? Because I know trauma comes up a lot within the grief space and people can perhaps get a bit confused. Like, can you talk us through the differences? Yes. So thank you for asking that. Cause if we, I'm such a, like, let's call the things what they are, because if we're not using the right words, how in the hell are we going to heal? So trauma is an injury. It's actually an injury to your nervous system. It's when your brain doesn't feel safe and you're stuck in either fight or flight or freeze or people pleasing or some manner of anxiety or depression or whatever. Your nervous system is stuck. Trauma is an injury. It's not an illness. It's not a disease and it can heal again with access to resources and enough safety. Trauma is an injury that can heal. It's like, if you break your ankle, you do enough physical therapy, your ankle's going to heal. Grief is something so different. It, it's not an injury in the same way. It's that deeper emotional, psychological, spiritual imprints of a loss that it doesn't ever go away. And the goal of mm. grief work is never to get over it. Grief is, it becomes part of the fabric of our being. The goal of grief work is to build a container large enough to hold that pain without it completely drowning you every second of every day. But you don't get over grief. You can metabolize trauma. Just like if I eat bad food, I'm going to puke it up and eventually that poison will be out of me. Mm -hmm. But grief is part of our story. Once we were hit by grief, it just becomes part of who we are. We can't undo or get over or forget about grief because it's an imprint and it doesn't have to dominate every second of every day, but it doesn't go away. And it's never the goal to get over it. I hate that. That's a myth that gets thrown around because it's yes. not, it's, you can't, how can you get over something that's part of the fabric of your being? That's exactly so, yeah. right. And thank you for saying that because, uh, you know, something that a lot of grievers do face is this, you know, pressure and this expectation to be over it by a certain point. And I think people that haven't gone through a loss don't realize that, you know, it just becomes part of you. You integrate your life around it, but yeah, you can't, you know, it's, it, you can't just get over it. So thanks for saying that. And, you know, if we, if we are experiencing trauma, whether we realize it or not, what are some of the things that we can do to help ourselves? The single most powerful starting place for trauma healing is whether or not you think it should have been traumatic, whether or not you think mm. you should be upset. Can we start with, I have a right to trauma, no matter how good my life, like having perspective on things like privilege is good. I'm not saying that we should be myopic and ignore the world and pain around us, but can we start with you have trauma and you're a human, therefore you have a right to have trauma and you have a right to heal trauma. Because if we do not start with no matter who you are or how awesome your life is, you're going to experience trauma. If you don't give yourself permission to name it, it's never going to heal. And so that really is the sticking point. The sticking point I see for people is I, I it's not, it shouldn't be trauma. Like that's such a big word, Brad. And it's, it's not that bad. I'm like, mm. okay, it's not that bad, but like, how's your life working right now? Like it's not. So yes, it is that bad. You may not think it should have been, but it is. So let's start with, let's commit to what is you have trauma. Cool. That's step one. Allow yourself to use the T word as you're describing your pain and your experience. And how can people, so you mentioned a few things before, like your body goes into fight, flight, or freeze. How can people identify trauma? Like if they're not hundred percent sure if it is or not, like, how do you know? That's why I use the word stuck in the book, because again, I, I don't like word 
you know, gatekeeping where it's like, you shouldn't use the word trauma. Well, I don't want to use the word trauma if it's not trauma. It's like, okay. And plus the word trauma has gotten so trendy that like, let's mm. just use the word stuck because we all get stuck. You may not call it trauma, but whether I think it's trauma and you don't, or you do, and I don't, let's just call it stuck and take the T word out of the equation altogether. How is your relationship with other people, with sleep, with food, with sex, with money, with your sense of well-being? If those things aren't all like crushing it, then let's just assume you're stuck somewhere. And if the word trauma is tripping you up, then toss it and let's use a different word altogether. Because what we call it matters, but it also doesn't matter. It's like, you're not feeling good. You're not feeling awesome. You're really unhappy and stressed out and your body is con like constricted in panic and stress all the time. So trauma, not trauma, let's just say you're stuck and you don't have to stay there. Anxiety is a big thing that comes up within our, within our community and it's a topic that we've covered before. But in your book, Britt, you say that anxiety is a superpower and without it, we stay stuck. Can you tell us more about how it keeps us stuck and what we can do to help ourselves coming from two very anxious people? <laughs> <laughs> and at three, like three. I don't like people get so mad at me when I talk about anxiety is your superpower. That doesn't mean you have to like it. I hate feeling anxious more than almost anything. Oh. Like I've had lots of different kinds of trauma and feeling that just panicky. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to go crazy. The world's going to end. I'm going to die feeling I'm well acquainted with that. Anxiety feels terrible. However, we need it just like you need a smoke alarm in your house or a, you know, check engine light on your car. If you don't have a smoke alarm, like I don't like it when my smoke alarm goes off. It's loud. It's inconvenient. It's unpleasant, but a smoke alarm is there to signal that there is a problem. And mm. anxiety is the smoke alarm of our brains. You don't have to like the sound of it, but anxiety is there to point us toward an untended injury or a place where there might be unresolved grief or trauma that's stuck in your nervous system somewhere. Without anxiety, how are we going to know who we are, what we want, what relationships are good for us, where to say yes, where to say no. Again, I don't love anxiety. And I'm certainly not saying you should just enjoy it and feel anxious all day. Every love day. that for us. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am saying that anxiety is a signal. It's not an attacker. And we're all trained to consider anxiety as this thing inside us that's out to get us. And if you think of anxiety as an attacker, you're going to ramp up your stress hormones. And then by the time you try to sit down and figure it out, your body is already flipping out. Mm. So think of anxiety as a well-meaning, but very annoying friend. Oh, it's a really <laughs> good, way, good way to put it. And what can we do if, if we're feeling anxious, like how do we identify an area that we might be stuck? Like, where can we start? So I can tell you where not to start. So yes. people come to me all the time with, why am I anxious? Why do I feel this way? And that's, I, I, I love analysis. I love a good deep dive. However, when the building's on fire, you don't ask, why is this building on fire? You get the people out and we'll figure out why later. So mm -hmm. if you're feeling anxious or panicky or stuck or whatever, let's not hit the why first. Like, why am I anxious? I don't know, but you are. So let's start instead of, why do I feel this way? What are three choices to help me feel less of this thing right now? Because anywhere our brain is conscious of choices, we're going to be able to downregulate. We're going to come out of the rafters a little bit and being mindful of, even if you don't like your choices, even if your choices are microscopic, anywhere choices are present, your system's going to dial down a little bit. And that's incredibly important. So we can have access to our logic brain instead of the smoke alarm flipping out and our amygdala going danger 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 you need to curl up in a ball and eat all the ice cream and watch all of youtube and you know smoke <laughs> meth and whatever else it is that people do myself included <laughs> i love your honesty brett it's <laughs> very refreshing um something else that you mentioned which i think is really important is that mental health is not necessarily a mental process it's actually a physical process and our scariest symptoms are bodily responses like what you were just talking about and I think that's something that we can really relate to as well and people might not realize like you think I've got a mental disorder but you don't think of it as like a physical one as well 
And the words that we were all taught, and again, no shame. This is just how we were taught, but we were taught wrong. Mental health is not mm. about your mind. Mental health is about your brain's interpretation of danger and safety. Mm. Now, I'm not saying mental illness isn't real. Like I talked to you about my grandmother, like, and I take psych meds. Like mental illness is very real. However, a lot of what we name as disorders or diseases or dysfunctions are our bodies doing what bodies are supposed to do when they're unsafe. Like I was in a really toxic relationship and there was all manners, like all of the different types of abuse that come with whatever. I thought I had an anxiety disorder. And I remember sitting mm. in my therapist's office being like, I have an anxiety disorder and I have depression. She's like, you're anxious and you're depressed, but you don't have anxiety. Your brain's doing what a brain is doing, living in the house you're living in. Of course, yeah. you're going to be panicking all day. Of course, you're going to be depressed at like, how could you expect your body to do what it's, you know, something else. Now in my situation, it was fairly obvious, like, oh, look, this is clearly a problem. It gets tricky when people are looking at reasonably functional lives and they're like, what's my problem? I have a great job and I have a supportive spouse and my children are great and everything's fine. Why am I so like, why am I such a mess? Why am I broken? And that's where if you dig in just a little bit, you're going to find grief. It's like, well, mm. as good as your life is, no one gets out of this human experience without loss and no one gets through loss without grieving. But again, we're not taught how to do it or given permission to even allow ourselves to do it. And therefore we get stuck. Yes. And I think we can be really hard on ourselves too. We we just recently launched a new segment of the podcast called Grievous Anonymous, where people can come in and share what's going on for them. And so many people were like, I'm just, I feel so bad that I can't get over this, that I can't get better. And, you know, I've got this big job that I need to go to and people I need to show up for, and I just can't do it. And we try to rush it. And then we, yeah, just end up feeling so much worse. Well, cause we all want to, you know, feel good and be happy. And I'm all about goodness and ha like, yay. I'm not suggesting that we should all co-sign on a life of feeling miserable, but yeah. we want to be whole and wholeness. Mm -hmm. As much as we talk about, we want to be wholehearted, you know, in our life, wholehearted living is tough because to be whole, you've got the good and the shiny and the happy and all of the yucky murky stuff that is not pretty and is not mm -hmm. fun to disclose and to share. But when we try to focus on happiness at the expense of wholeness, we're going to feel miserable and we're going to spin. Mm -hmm. And so I should be over it. I should be over it is trying to force yourself into the happy area of the circle. It's like, nope, if you're going to be a, a happy person, you need to be a whole person. And to be a whole person, you need to honor the good, the bad, and the holy shit that sucks. Like all of it. Yeah. It's all valid. And I think, you know, it's embracing that you're going to have like strong periods where you feel okay. And then as with grief, you're going to have times when you just feel shit. Like for me, I had six months of feeling really strong and like almost said like to my husband, like, I feel like maybe I'm in, in a different phase of my grief now. And then literally this last week, I feel like it's the first week all over again. Yes. So I think it's like allowing yourself to be happy, but then also, like you said, I love that allowing yourself to be holy shit as well. Which is self-care. Self-care is not always bubble baths and, you know, sitting there in rose Cucumbers petals. on the eyes. Yes. yes. <laughs> like sometimes self-care is permission to feel absolutely miserable. Mm. And again, I'm not suggesting that we wallow in that, but you're more likely to be able to move through something if you give yourself permission to feel it. Like people who are wallowing in misery, I you'll hear them say, I know I shouldn't feel like this. And I know this is bad that I'm feeling like this. And I know I should be happy. It's like, well, let's just start with your not. So like permission to be miserable granted that will actually, and that's scary. People are worried they'll get stuck in their grief and their unhappiness. We also need to change the metaphor because grief is not linear and it's not in stages. You know, the whole like five stages of grief that was written for people who are dying, not for yes. people who were mourning. Yes. So grief is not linear. It's the, I don't know who came up with this. I wish I did so I could give them credit, but it was, you know, grief is more like an ocean where some days you're floating on your back and the sun is out and all is well. And other days you're getting tossed and you've got sand in places sand shouldn't be and you're spitting out mouthfuls of water and praying to catch your breath. And that's a much better metaphor than this like linear, now I'm over it, I'm done. It's like, nah, the ocean is nice on some days and some days it'll kick your ass. Yes, and it's the biggest <laughs> grief myth. And I think it's important what you said, like, you know, 
it's okay if you don't feel great. I think sometimes when we're grieving, we feel really fucking sad and really shit. And we don't necessarily always want to admit that to people because we feel like we should be at a certain place in our, you know, in our life or in our grief, or we should just be all smiles. But actually you've got to give yourself permission to be like, I'm not all right. I don't feel great. Like, what did, what did you say? Queen, queen of the hot mess express. Yes. I'll say again. <laughs> Disaster. Which brings us to, I get where grief gets sticky because most people, I won't say most, there's a huge problem where a lot of people don't know what to do with grieving people. And, you know, the worst thing to say to somebody who's grieving is I'm sorry. And again, no shame. I get that, you know, if someone's sad, we all were trained. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that that happened. But nothing makes me feel crappier than being told I'm sorry, because that puts the person there who's like, oh, Pat, Pat, sorry for you down there. Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to hold space for someone who's grieving, I don't say I'm so sorry. And again, if you've ever said, I'm sorry, no shame. This is just things that we can do differently. I just say, wow, that sucks. That's awful that that happens. Mm. You know, like if I share one of my trauma stories, I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I want to hear, wow, that sucked. Or, wow, kudos to you for surviving that. I don't want that. The pity is not medicine mm. for a grieving heart. Sympathy is not medicine for a grieving heart. Being held like, as an equal human with someone, that's much better medicine for, at least for my grief. I don't know how it is for the two of you, but I would much rather have someone say, wow, oh my God, that was bad. Mm -hmm. Then I'm so sorry. Yes. That's me. Definitely. Yeah. We like hearing Oz, it, that's shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's really shit. Real talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Real absolutely talk. i think i said i'm so sorry to someone this morning shit better go back and go actually you know what i do what? it that's too, really... <laughs> I do it just too. Just... habitual like it just fucking comes out because that's what we're so used to saying but let's change and that. no shame I, I still say it too and again we're uncomfortable so part one of the tasks of grieving which is unfortunate is we have to train the people around us that love us but have no skills what to do and so it's like i wish i could just hand out grief post-its like here just say this to me today hey brit good job not dying today hey brit good, good job, job you know showing up for work hey brit good job taking a shower today or whatever but it's really hard to be a griever while also trying to teach people around you how to support you while you're grieving it's exhausting I have a lot of compassion for the dilemma. Again, why well, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. Okay, let's pause for a moment to talk about today's sponsor, National Not-for-Profit Griefline, and their new Griefline Knowledge Service, which aims to provide grief literacy education and training for individuals, workplaces, schools, and community groups. So you can get to know grief to better support yourself and others and whether you're supporting someone grieving or navigating loss yourself i think we could all do with being a little bit more grief informed couldn't we absolutely guys these new evidence-based courses and workshops draw on griefline's decades of experience supporting australians through all forms of grief and loss Grief knowledge program themes include cultivating a grief-informed workplace, addressing loneliness and social isolation triggered by grief, which is a big one for a lot of us, how to support a grieving friend, advanced grief theories for professional therapists, and workplace bereavement support groups. And as part of the Griefline Knowledge Program, we've actually partnered with Griefline to create a joint free ebook resource on how to support a grieving friend, where you can learn how to support and confidently interact with others experiencing grief, loss, and loneliness. And you can find it on their website or via the link in the show notes. I feel like everyone needs one of these ebooks. <laughs> Definitely. Give them to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get more people knowing how to support people. And plus, if you're grieving yourself, Griefline Knowledge has coping strategies and self-care routines to promote physical, emotional, and mental well-being, which are all things that we need when we're feeling griefy. For more information on the new Griefline Knowledge service, visit knowledge.griefline.org.au. Now back to the show. 
something that we wanted to talk about was emotional regulation or self-regulating your emotions because it's something that we don't necessarily automatically know how to do. And for someone like me, I wasn't actually taught how to do it when I was a kid and it's something I'm struggling to teach my daughter how to do. Can you talk to us a little bit about, yeah, self-regulating our emotions and how we can start if it's not something that we've learned? Yeah. And I didn't learn it either. I didn't know what a feeling was until I was like 25. And I didn't know that I had pain and sadness and grief until I was like 27. So emotional regulation, which I'm so glad everyone's talking about now because Mm -hmm. it was never talked about, Mm -hmm. but somewhere in the zeitgeist, emotional regulation is now synonymous with being calm and emotional regulation is not the same as being calm. You can be emotionally regulated and angry. You can be emotionally regulated and sad. You can be emotionally regulated and really, really pissed off. Regulation means that we're still in control of what's happening. So I might be really mad, but if I am regulated, I can choose my words. I'm not going to just pop off and say whatever I want. I'm not going to punch you in the face. I'm not going to go do drugs or whatever it is that I might want to do. Regulation is basically being able to tolerate what's happening to you and have enough of an observer on board to make choices. And the way I like to teach that to people is if you think of yourself as parts and not just one. So like if I had a kiddo I was working with who's really, really angry, I'd be like, wow, there's a part of you that's really, really angry. It makes sense. How can we, me and the child, help this angry part of you? And that creates Mm -hmm. a little bit of space. So the kiddo is like, oh, I am not my anger. My anger is a part of me and I can still contain it where I have choices. So regulation is anywhere you are still aware of and using choices. That's a better way, an easier way to describe it. And it's to like help you, yeah, like respond to the situation, not react, right? That's the goal. (laughs) Exactly. Like, and you can have big, you know, I, I still see a therapist and, you know, I'll have a ugly cry, snotting out my nose kind of session, but I'm still regulated because I'm aware of what's happening. I'm, you know, I can't control that big wave of, but I can control my response to it. So when I'm feeling it, I'm not throwing my computer across the room, even though I want to some days in therapy and I'm still able to access my choices. So if you can still access your choices, no matter how big of a feeling you're riding, then you're regulated. I like to think of it as you're on the surfboard and it might be a giant wave, but if you're on top of the surfboard and you're not underneath it, you're regulated. Such a good analogy. And something that you also talk about in your book, Britt, is shadow intelligence, which I found really interesting. And would love to know what is shadow intelligence and like how can we use it to help ourselves? I had to sneak a little woo in the book. You know, I come at it from a very clinical framework, but shadow work, which, you know, has been around forever, is such a beautiful body of work that sort of gets confined to the the woo esoterics metaphysical and it's not that deep it's like shadows are in nature are formed when light is blocked so if like the sun is blocking something there's going to be a shadow psychological shadows is anywhere where our awareness is blocked i don't know why i'm doing the thing there's a shadow there i don't know why i just reacted like that it was like something came over me and all of a sudden i was this other okay that's a shadow as well so shadow intelligence is my little fun like Brandon Goldman came up with emotional intelligence. So I'm like, cool. Emotional intelligence is the degree to which you're conscious of and aware of your emotions. Shadow intelligence is the degree to which you're conscious of and aware of all of those parts of yourself that are kind of uncomfortable. Like, you know, I have a shadow part of me that likes drugs and chaos and really toxic people. I don't act that out anymore, but I'm aware that I have a part of myself that is drawn towards that. And if you're, you know, if you make friends with all of your shadows, then you're not going to be unconsciously driven by them. And then you're in the driver's seat instead of being locked in the trunk, speeding at 95 miles an hour with no brakes. So if we want to make friends with our shadows, like how can we observe what they are? Is it when you do something, you're like, oh, I didn't feel good about the way, like the way I just behaved then, or, oh, I didn't like that I was drawn to that. Is that how you identify it? It's one way. There's Mm. a really fun exercise, fun quote, everything's so fun. (laughs) So one of the best ways to suss out your shadows is to look at your browser history. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's like, oh shit. But it's so funny. It's like, if I died today, I would be more embarrassed by my browser history than like my, you know, behavioral history or whatever. But if you look at where you go, that you're going to see patterns. If you go through a week's worth of mindless scrolling and you look at your browser history, it's like, what videos were you watching? Who are you looking at? We all have these weird places that we go on the internet when we're bored or stressed out or overwhelmed. And that is going to give you a clue to what your shadow content is. It's a nifty little exercise. <laughs> Can you psychoanalyze us, Britt? Okay. So my browser history is literally like am I dying of this have I got this this disease that what's this physical symptom oh heart palpitations uh, like literally all physical symptoms every single day I'm googling like can you help me <laughs> <laughs> psychoanalysis time well the first yeah. thing I would say is do you have any medical condition or family history because like that kind of browsing makes sense if you have a chronic medical condition or a family nope. history okay so I gotta rule out like the obvious first yeah so, no obvious there <laughs> so again I don't I don't I'm not gonna diagnose or whatever but yeah. as, as somebody who does that as well it's like I'm so concerned with maintaining the sense of control over my body because my environment was so out of control oh so God, if there's okay. a twitch that I don't understand I need to know what it is what caused it what can I take what can I eat to stop it because if I can't control this then everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket. So, yes. Well, I had a very chaotic upbringing, I'd say. It wasn't stable. It was loving, but it wasn't stable. Like I had like at one point fucking seven parents, like it was a lot. So I think I just, yeah, I just want that control, right? Is that why I'm like Googling, am I dying every five seconds? (laughs) Right. And so if we were in therapy, I would say, oh my gosh, how amazing is it that there's a part of you that is so committed to your life that they want to make sure that they're safe? Because if you didn't care about your life, you wouldn't care. It would be like, so I would start by affirming, yay, you have a really strong part of you that wants to live and be healthy and enjoy life. Cool. Okay. Is there a different way we can help that part of you feel safe and in control of what's happening to you? Because if we focus on every single micro twitch, which I do, then we're going to spin and it's going to be awful. And then we're going to feel more out of control and more anxious. And then off we go. Okay. I love this. Yeah. It's so interesting. Im, that's like, a, like such an uh, enlightening way to think about it, isn't it? Yes. Next time I'm going to Google, I'll be like, no, this is just me trying to control my chaotic life that I feel like I have no control over yes. <laughs> and yes. myself before I do yes. it. Yes. But without shaming yourself, you know, like, Mm. oh my God, I was looking at, like, I have this weird rabbit trail I go on with different celebrity gossip things. And I'm, oh my God, I can't believe I'm looking, I'm clicking on this. Like, what is wrong with me? Like, that's not helpful. (laughs) It's like, oh, wow. Okay. Hello, teenage Brit. I understand that you're, you're trying to feel like a certain kind of way. And like, let me help you find a better way to feel connected. Cause gossip, even celebrity gossip is just a not healthy way of feeling connected connected and in the know and like you're special and have access to special information. So, okay. If you're looking at all of this weird stuff, I think you want some attention right now, which isn't bad. Let's find a healthier way to get it. Maybe we can phone a friend. Maybe we can go hug our puppy and do something else, but not abandoning ourselves. Even when we don't stop, like I've been on scroll marathons where I'm like, wow, this is really not healthy for me, but I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm just going to co-sign on it, whatever. But if we don't abandon ourselves, then we can pop out of whatever we're doing a lot faster than the shame spiral, which doesn't help anything. Oh, queens of the spiral. We are, um, (laughs) Im and I, and so I love, this is a bit of a side note, but I really love like dark miserable British crime dramas. And my husband is always like, why do you watch this shit? It is so depressing and so dark. And like, I was watching this, you know, like deep in my grief. And even I was aware, like this probably isn't the most, you know, the best content for me to be consuming right now, but I I love it. She what? can't help it. Yeah. What's wrong with her Brit? <laughs> yeah. Is that like a shadow thing? Or is it just that I find it interesting? What's going on? So I've done posts about, you know, like our obsession with like murder crime kind of things. So it's not true for everyone in every situation, but a lot of the time, and for me, I was the same way. It's like, 
my pain and my grief and my trauma is so hard to pin down. But when I watch someone get ax murdered, it's very clear that something bad is happening. And that type of clarity is regulating. So I went through a season where watching really violent, gory stuff calmed my system down because I couldn't put my finger on what was, even though that's not what was happening to me, the level of insanity in my home felt like that. And so there was something I recognized in it that was regulating to me. Some people just have a little shadow part that's fascinated by human depravity and that's fine. I had someone like get really mad and DM me. I don't have a shadow part. I'm in forensics and I just find this interesting from a work standpoint. I'm like, okay, well, your anger you you. clearly yeah. is a shadow, <laughs> but like, yeah. okay, if this isn't relevant to you, then scroll on. It's not for you yeah. or about you. But our obsession with crime stuff is very much, there's something familiar in those stories and we gravitate towards what's familiar even if we think it's oh no i like what's different and unusual you may think it's different and unusual but i bet there's some common threats to the feelings to the impacts yes yes thank you so much brit for yeah for sharing all of this with us and before we go we'd love to know like where can our listeners find you you can find me in my shadows doing yeah. weird searches, watching really strange shows. Um, I'm on Instagram at Brit Frank, and you can find my website, scienceofstuck.com, and you can buy the book wherever books are sold, wherever you buy books. But come say hello to me online. I have terrible Instagram boundaries. I will be there, and I would love to meet you and say hi. <laughs> we have terrible, well, we try. We're trying with the boundaries. It's so important when we do this sort of work, isn't it, to implement those boundaries to protect yes. our energies and look after our shadows but we will link all of those resources in the in the show notes as well so people can find you Britt but thank you so much we've loved this chat we've learned so much from you and yeah it's been everything we were hoping thank you so much this was fun strangely <laughs> <laughs> that chat was so bloody refreshing wasn't it oh it was I mean come on now let's all go and have a little look at our google search history uh, actually don't no, want to no like, you know that's probably like one if there was one thing that someone said like you had to do which was show someone your google search history i couldn't do it like i don't think any amount of money would let if, if it were to go public i don't think there's any amount of money <laughs> that would make me do that Jesus. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, before we go, guys, we just want to say a big thank you to today's sponsor, Griefline. If you are struggling and need some extra support in your grief, you can call Griefline's National Toll Free Helpline on 1300 845 745 or visit griefline.org.au to access their Griefline Knowledge Program and support services, which are also detailed in the show notes. Until next time, guys. Bye for now. Bye.